You're listening to the Deconstructing Success podcast. I am your host, Tima Alhaj. Have you ever wondered what happens behind closed doors when it comes to real success? I know I have, and this is exactly why this show was created. I have an insatiable desire when it comes to learning from the best in the world and an obsession with how successful people think, operate and execute. I want to know what sets these people apart from the average person. Each week, my focus is to have intimate conversations with successful CEOs, founders, athletes, experts, and leaders that have created extraordinary levels of success in their own lives. My goal is to ask the right questions whilst deconstructing their success process, their mindset, their life philosophy, and how they continue to achieve success. I want this information to be actionable for my listeners so you can achieve the success you desire and create your dream life. If you are hungry to grow and evolve to your full potential, then continue listening and subscribe as I deconstruct success from some of the greatest minds and the most inspirational individuals in the world. Welcome to episode 11 of the Deconstructing Success podcast. Today's guest is CEO of Kingston Lane, Sharan Srivatsa. In this episode, Sharan shares his incredible story of growing up from humble beginnings in India. In 2011, Sharan walked away from his banking job on Wall Street to become the president of Beverly Hills-based Talus Properties. At the time, the luxury real estate brokerage was making over $300 million annually, and in just five years, Sharan and his partners transformed the company into a business worth more than $3 billion and increasing its value 10 times over. Sharan is now a venture capitalist, sought-after business coach, and the CEO of real estate software company Kingston Lane. Thank you so much, Sharan. It's so exciting to have you on the show today. So thank you so much for uh, really just giving up some of your Friday afternoon to be with us today. Thank you. Oh, awesome. No, thank you for having me. And I don't think people realize that how long, how much time, how many resources this stuff takes. So you literally don't need to do this. And that's what people <laughs> need to realize, right? You don't need to do this. And the fact that you've made the commitment to finding not just me, but great people that, you know, if, if you if you just go and look at the amount of knowledge and, and gems that are on the podcast that you've created, there's a real, literally an MBA waiting for someone for free on your show. And you don't need to do this. So I want to I wanna kind of hat tip, give you a hat tip saying, hey, listen, thank you for doing this. Thank you for creating this space for us to come and share so that it impacts people. So thank you for having me. Oh my goodness, Ryan. You're such an incredible human. And I genuinely mean that. I I've come I've I've spoken to a lot of people, a lot of successful people, but one thing that really resonates with you is that you are so thoughtful and so kind. I mean, even when when we interacted, you were saying to me, you know, what can I do to help you? And and for me, for someone that doesn't really ever ask for help is uh I, I really don't take that lightly. I just really, really embrace that and um and so so thankful. So thank you again for coming on the show and and the reason why I wanted you on my show because when I found you online, I just loved your story. And it really is a story that I'm pretty sure one day will become a movie at some stage. I don't know <laughs> if you've been approached by Hollywood, 
but the story is just beautiful. And before we get into that, because your parents are a huge part of this story, I'd love to know how they are. How are your parents? Yeah, they're doing well. Thank you for asking. My parents, um, they actually have it nailed down really well. My parents moved into this uh, community where they live now in India. They moved back there in India now and they live in India. And they're like on, they're on, as we're recording this during COVID time, they're on lockdown and the world's, they found a world where they have a great group of people that they can connect with six feet apart. And uh, they are spending a lot of time together with each other. And the key thing though, team, I want to talk about this is my parents have realized what makes each of them tick individually. And so they are able to support each other's kind of missions in life and their passions in life. And my dad always says, hey, I, I've, after you know, 40 plus years of being married to your mom, I finally realized that she's not like me and I'm not like her and it's my job to support her. And it's really powerful to hear that. And so my dad's kind of flipped this as a, hey, I am in service. I'm here living in service of your mom. And my mom's like, I'm here living in service of your dad, which is super exciting to see, right? And so sometimes when I get into it with my wife and my family, I start to realize that it's, it's, it's family. It's, uh, we are here in service of them. And even though it's hard to realize that sometimes, we have to, if we can be reminded of that, it's helpful. So my, they're doing well and uh, they FaceTime with the kids often. So I appreciate that. No, it's beautiful. And I, and I love knowing that that there's like a new phase, a new beginning in a way for your parents because, uh, look, my background is Lebanese. Uh, not that the Indian culture and Lebanese culture are the same, but there are a lot of similarities in terms of family and uh, and dynamic, especially when it comes to marriage and things like that. So the fact that it took your father and, and mother, you know, a few years to really come to that uh, realisation, but also embrace it, is really beautiful. So I love yeah. that you shared that. So yeah. thank you. Yeah. yeah. And you know, I'll tell you, one, I'll tell you one thing that, which is totally off book, off script, and everyone should kind of know this is one of the things about cultures is that we're all influenced by our, our family units in a lot of ways. And sometimes we're influenced by it so deeply that we take on a lot of who they are, the culture and all of that. And sometimes we just rebel and revolt against it. And it's okay. But the one thing I'll tell you is most cultures around the world suffer in silence. And it's a really important thing that you know we can touch on more. And you said this earlier, you said, hey, I'm not a kind of person who asks for a lot of help. And, and one, that's actually true of a lot of entrepreneurs, by the way. That's a common trait. And for the CEOs that I mentor, that's a very common trait. I got to pull stuff out of them because I can't help them otherwise. But culturally, most cultures in, in Asia, the Middle East, generally speaking, from what I know, and, and just singling them out, is there's this concept of suffering in silence. It's asking for help is not baked into how we are raised. And no one ever taught us how to ask for help. And it was almost a, you're not good enough if you asked for help. And people need to realize that, that, that that's not necessarily true in the modern world because we've got to create some space to ask for help and asking for it with the right people in the non-judgmental way is the, is the right opportunity. The right opportunity presents itself. But I'll tell you the fastest way to growth is asking, <laughs> asking for help. Asking for help, yeah. yeah. And, and, one, and we'll definitely touch on the collaborations that you really created along the way. But to touch on the culture, it's very, very true, Sharon. Uh, it's not that it was, it's ever been said, you don't ask for help. It's like this unspoken rule, 
which has never really, your parents don't ever sit you down and teach you this. It's just this vibe, this energy that you get growing up. I know that's that was very true for me. And it wasn't even about not asking for help. It was more about you don't air your dirty laundry out, which in a way could fit under that category, which it isn't dirty laundry, but you don't want anyone to really know what is going on behind the scenes because you don't want that shame to be associated with your family. And I really think that's where it really stems from. And and I and I really love that you brought that up because I know it's it's true for a lot of people, but when you are in your, say, 20s or 30s or 40s, to break free from that is really, really challenging. And one thing that I would love to touch on, because your parents, even though they seem quite traditional, they seem quite modern thinkers and ahead of their time. Well, definitely, I'd love to, to touch on the time when your father was with you at, on the park bench you were, how old were you, about 12? I was 10 uh, or 11. I think 10 it was like 11. my 10th or 11th birthday. Wow. So you were my daughter's age. That's so, that's so young. Like now when I put that into perspective, that's very young. And correct me if I'm wrong, I, I kind of feel as though that your father, in a way, formed your why. Like he gave you purpose in that conversation. He basically handed over, this is your purpose now. And that's really quite beautiful. Some may look at that as a massive responsibility and how could someone put so much pressure on a child because you were a child. But I love that your father in a way literally handed over something that we all really struggle with growing up and really trying to discover what our why is and what our purpose is. But your father just basically said, hey, this is yours and this is why you should be doing this and going from there. So can you go back to that moment when you were 10 with your dad on the park bench? Yeah, totally. And, you know, I'd say the, the interesting part is our cultures don't teach us to share vulnerability, right? Like that's, it, it's just, it's actually what I've realized is it takes two things to be vulnerable. One, it's permission. <laughs> and the permission is culturally, we are not given the permission to be vulnerable. And second is, even if you were a rebel and revolted against it, no one taught you the skill to be vulnerable. They taught you how to tell that story. That's why it's taken me 20 plus years to figure out how to tell what happened then. And a lot of what happened then, my parents didn't even know. And what I mean by that is, I still remember the day uh, when I was in school and I... I had a late growth spurt in a lot of things. And so I was a I was a small kid. I'm much taller and bigger now, but I was a small kid. I was, you know, had symptoms of ADD, ADHD, and the schools didn't like that because they always would just say, You're dumb. And I had I was dyslexic, which basically the schools would say more, you're dumb. I was colorblind, which means I failed out of art class, which I couldn't even paint or choose the right colors. I was tone deaf. So I couldn't even be in music class. I was the smallest kid early on in you know, kind of middle school. So I would not do sports very well. So it was kind of this little mix of everything going wrong for someone like me. And I, I'm not asking for the sympathy now. Looking back, it was probably a, a gift in disguise. But you know, I remember the time when like, I, got, I used to get bullied, bullied to the point where shoved, made fun of, sometimes even beaten, which the last thing a parent wants to hear about. So I never said anything to anybody. I remember this time where going from like one classroom to another classroom, just walking and kind of 20 feet away, not very far. I knew that there were lockers in between and I would get bullied and beaten because that's where all the, all the you know, bullies hang out. So I actually used to run around campus so I can stay away from them to go get the other side of getting to the classroom just to avoid being bullied. And I think my dad figured out that something was wrong. 
and he uh and he didn't know what and i i also didn't think he pulled anything out of me because he knew that i probably wouldn't share and we were sitting on this park bench one day i think it was my 10th or 11th birthday i can't remember but i i knew it was my birthday and i think it was my 10th birthday and he said to me we were talking and he said hey and he gave me this gift of the why which i'll tell you about in a second and he said you know, we want, I want to give you, we want to find a better life for you. And I really didn't know what that meant. And I I was like, well, this is what life is like. This is all I have. I didn't know any different. And he used these words, which he probably doesn't even remember. And he used to say these often. And he says, we always need to seek a bigger and better future. I thought that was super powerful. So I always have that in the back of my mind. You know, we always want to seek a bigger and better future. And a lot of people realize that, you know, they'll say, oh, my why is my family? My why is my impact? My why is my cause? My why is my, you know, the, the thing that I'm going after. But my, my dad spun it a little differently for me. And I realized my why was not something, but my why was a philosophical construct, which is a bigger and better future. And he said, like, as long as you have the belief in the future being bigger and better than what it is today, you will never be depressed. You will never be saddened. You'll never be disheartened. And so he said, hey, uh, this he's like, I've, he'd never been outside of India. And he said, I, I've heard that there's a lot of other educational and economic systems that will benefit someone like you. Let's explore that. And he's like, but for that, you need uh, to have a skill. And that was the second lesson. And I said, well, what skill? I don't have any skill. Mm-hmm. I'm 10. I don't have any <laughs> skill right now. And we were sitting in front of two tennis courts. And he said, well, what if... He's like, can you cut that? Can you sink your teeth into something if you had nothing else going on? Because it's an individual sport. Maybe we can uh, support you to learning it. And if you do well enough, it'll serve as kind of your ticket, your passport, your, your, your un, you, know, you get out of jail free card to go anywhere you want. Not that you have to, but it'll give you the option, right? And they give you the option. And I thought... I was like, okay, well, literally what I thought to him at that time was, okay, my dad is basically telling me that I can play tennis, which is fun, for, just for now, and I can put everything else on the back burner. And literally my dad told me that. He said, your schoolwork is secondary. Everything is secondary to you learning the skill. And that was the first time I learned that if you can focus on something you can get really good at it. You can get really good at it. So for me, it was, oh my gosh, this is awesome. My, my dad just gave me the permission to not have to like stress out at school and do well. And little did I realize that it was a really smart decision to give me a, give me a shot at learning a skill. Mm-hmm. A focus on something. Yeah, totally, right? And believe something in that new. skill, which I thought was mm-hmm. so great. And so I learned that skill and that's what really, um, and that, essentially became the ticket for me to leave India and travel the world, play tennis and get to the U.S. finally. So I still remember that day. And I, uh, the, the, the why goes back to not just one thing of getting out or having a better life. It was like, how can you focus on a bigger and a better future? And was this in the 90s, just to put things into concept? Was that around the 90s? And, and so your father at the time, it seems like your dad was really into personal development in a way because even some of those sayings, you know, that he would say to you, um, I think one of them, I've, I have it written down, was that you plan your future today. Yeah. You, yeah. You said you create tomorrow today. That's right. You, you create, create tomorrow. your tomorrow today. Yeah. And, uh, and so all these little nuggets of wisdom that your father would teach you, was that, did that play a huge part on not only your internal dialogue, but just how you perceive the world? 
Well, I, I think so, right? I think early on what happens is you, we are all a product of our, just our environments, right? And we try to figure out, hey, what's, all I knew, I'll, I'll tell you this fun story. My, my dad, every single day, we lived in a one-bedroom apartment. I'll never forget it. And every single day after dinner, my dad would sit down at our dining table after it was cleaned out. And he had this, this kind of diary that he had one page for every single day. And he would put the date, tomorrow's date, on a new page. And he would write down in just one, two, three, four, five things that he was committing to getting done the next day. And he's like, these are the things I'm going to do tomorrow. And he would write all of those down. And once he was done kind of planning tomorrow, he would put his pen down and, and he would leave his diary there and he would, and that would be the end of the night. And that's what he called, all right, it's time to create tomorrow today. Because now he'd actually planned the next day before the next day started because he'd already made the choices on what was important for him. I didn't know any different. And I mean, to me, it was... Well, I guess everybody does this. I have no idea. <laughs> so, so it clearly worked because it kept him focused. It kept him driven. It kept him built on what he was doing. And so I kind of adopted kind of the same practices as well. And do you share any of that with your children? Are there any of these things that you took on growing up that you share with your kids today? Yeah, the one thing I'll tell you that I share with um, my son, my daughter's a little younger. My daughter's four right now. So my one thing I share with my son is... We do daily affirmations, and uh, you're, I think you're, people think this is hokey, but I think you can actually program yourself into thinking about the world the right way, because literally our minds are all the same, right? Like we're just bringing awareness to the good things in our lives and programming our lives with the right vibrations. And so, I, I'm, I'm a big affirmations kind of guy, and and I just want to wire my body in a good state so that I can be and show up in a good state. So there is, I'll share this with you, and you can put it in the show notes. But I have a Every single day when uh, I take my son to school, we turn the corner of the street on his school and instantly when they turn the corner, he'll just start his affirmations. And I'll even tell you what they are. He's like, you know, he'll say, I am a gladiator. Winter is my season. This is my time. I will not be denied. I'm alive. I'm excited and I'm full of energy. And that's every single day. I love that. I love that. And, and, And he, I actually have a video of him when he was maybe three sitting beside the pool and I was just playing around and I, he's three years old. He's in his, you know, in his swimmers and he's just sitting there. And I'm, I said, Neil, do your affirmations. And literally he just belts them out as, as a three-year-old. And uh, I have a video of that and it, it's pretty wild. So I'll, I'll share it with you that. because it's... Uh, yeah, I love that. How old is he now? Uh, he's eight. Eight. Okay. That, that's, that's a really, really great foundation. Those little practices really make a big difference because it really comes back to the mindset. And I love that you're instilling that. I know that I did a little bit of that with Zara, but I haven't continued, but you've inspired me to keep doing that because it's so important. I mean, I know that, you know, she'll say things like, mommy, I know I can do anything if I put my mind to it. Mummy, um, I know that it's not just about because you know with girls, as you would know, you have your four-year-old. You don't want your daughter to, daughter to rely on her looks or anything like that. You know, she'll say things things like, "I know that I'm really pretty, mummy, but it's about my heart and what I bring into the world and my mind." So it's all those things that you really need to instill with your kids. And whether they believe it or not, yet they will eventually because it's a skill that they're practicing every single day that will eventually just become a become a part of them and how they think. And that's incredible. So I love that you're sharing that. So 
Going back to your parents, what do you think they saw in you? Because one of the things that your dad said to you was, maybe this country isn't for you. Was there something that he saw in you in terms of potential that he thought that the environment just was not the right environment for you and that you won't be able to thrive, not just purely because of the the uh, social dynamic and the structure in India. What do you think your parents saw in you that thought, our son's really special and he can do some great things, but this is not the place for him. Uh, you know, it's a great question. I don't, I, I don't know. I probably have to ask them, but what I believe they saw is they saw what was not working. And I think they really noticed that. I was a contrarian. I would, you know, people would say, like I would raise my hand and say in class, be like, I, I'm sorry, I don't understand why we do that. And then they'll say, well, that's how we do it. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I don't understand. That doesn't make sense. Why should we do it that way? Like, why do you need me to show your work when I can do it in my head? Why do you need me to write it this way? Why do you need me to say, dear sir, like you're not a knight? Like I, I, I'll ask questions and then, and I got myself in a ton of trouble by asking, by challenging the norm. And none of it was meant to be from a challenge perspective. It was more like, I don't understand, like help me understand. You were so just I can, curious. I was you super curious. curious. Yeah. But the one thing I didn't do well that I do better now is I still challenge now. I, I, and I'm kind of a skeptic now. I, I, I'm not an instant believer in things. I question a lot because I just want to understand it. But right now what I do is instead of being outwardly super outspoken about challenging something, I'm much more kinder about it. You know, I said, so, so the one thing that my parents really instilled in me was they're like, Hey, like you can't be a bull in a China shop and tell people that you don't <laughs> like something like you, you told, it's cool that you're curious, but be kind about it. And my wife always says this and she has this little sign that says kind people are my kind of people, which is really nice. And so I, I think that there is an opportunity for us to be like, Hey, I, I always said, tell my kids too. The first response is, be kind. The second response is you can be neutral. And the third response, you can lose your cool. But you can't lose your cool right away. And so as soon as if they lose their cool right away, I'm like, hey, that was just the first response. Start with being kind. Next, be neutral. And so I think I got more, I don't know what they saw, but my parents saw that I was struggling and they knew that clearly the environment was not supportive. And uh, my parents had friends and siblings that had left India to either go to come to Australia, which was top of my choice, or go to the UK or come to the US. And they were like, hey, maybe these environments are more, they help kind of self-expression more, right? And, and I thought that was, that's what my parents heard. They never even left the country. And I think they said, hey, it's got to be better than what it is here. So I think it was their hope that if it's not here, it has to be better somewhere else. So let's, let's try to at least get them to a better place. That's incredible. So you, you were taught tennis, basically. You had never played tennis in your life before. So this was now your new focus to be the best in tennis. And so what age did you then leave India? Because you did quite well, didn't you? Yeah, I did. I did find I did good enough to get out of India. Um, I played on... I think since I was starting a little later, uh, I probably had some decent skills. It was not, you know, I didn't have to spend four years learning. It looked like maybe it was focus or maybe it was just a, a blessing that I got. I was decent at the sport. Uh, I did pretty well. I started to play on the pro tennis tour and I left India when I was 16 to come to the US. Wow, that's so young. So you were 16. And when you first arrived in the US, like what were you thinking and what were you feeling? How was your first day like? 
<laughs> my uh, my first 48 hours were pretty uh, interesting in the US. I didn't know anybody and I landed in Chicago and the university that I was going to had entrusted somebody to come get me, which is part of their kind of service, I guess. And so I was sticking around at the airport, waited at the right area. No one came for three hours, six hours, nine hours, 12 hours. And finally it was evening time. So I was sleeping at the airport. I was like, I didn't, I didn't even know who to call because it was pre-cell phone, pre-all of that. And this, this, the speaker, the public address system goes off and it said, hey, Sharan Srivatsa, please report to a white courtesy phone. I was like, oh my gosh, this, what, what kind of trouble am I in right now? <laughs> and so I, I get on the courtesy phone, I get a message and I clearly, the person that was trying to pick me up was delayed or had a car issue or whatever. And they said, hey, this person is stuck and they wanted you to take a bus to meet them in Moline, Illinois. And I was like, where's Moline, Illinois? I don't even know where I am. So I figured I went and tried to get a bus and I got to, I got on a bus and the bus keeps going and Moline's supposed to be like two hours away. And I've been on this bus four hours. Clearly, I think I'm going in the wrong direction. So I wait and finally it's nightfall and it's still my first day in the U.S. So I get it's, it's dark. It's at the bus depot. It's the end of the line. No one else is on the bus. The bus driver comes up to me and says, hey, kid, I think you're in the wrong place, but I got to lock this up. Why don't you get in the bus depot and find your way home tomorrow? I said, okay. So I didn't have a lot of stuff. I had like a couple bags of clothes, a backpack. I get out of the bus and try to find my way. It's dark outside. And suddenly out of nowhere, this guy jumps out with a knife. My first 24 hours in the US and he says give me your money. <laughs> I was like, this is so funny because these are all stuff that you kind of hear about, but I've literally, I, you know, no, I never thought that, I, that my first 24 hours in the US, a guy with a hoodie <laughs> is going to jump me with a knife. And, and yeah. at that point, you're just like, what, like, what do you do? And I literally froze. I didn't know what to say. I didn't have a lot of cash on me. I had a hundred dollar bill and uh, some loose change that I paid for bus fares with. And that's literally all I had. I didn't even have a wallet. I just had $100, like $100 bill that my, my parents had given me and I, like some loose change. And so he goes through my bags and things like that and right in front of me. And then he says, you're the worst person I've ever mugged. <laughs> I <was> like, well, <laughs> that's what he actually <laughs> said to you. Oh, yeah. And I, I, and I said, well, uh, I'm sorry. Like, I'm a student. I don't, you know, I just got here. My, I don't have a lot. And then I looked at him and something magical came over me. And I remember this moment. And I, I did not, there was no strategy for this at all. And I knew that I had a choice to make. I didn't want to risk my life or getting hurt or I didn't know anybody. And I didn't want to bleed out in a parking lot and no one would know where I was. So I said, okay, well, let me try to be smart and at least get this guy off me and give him the money. So I, I looked at him and I said, hey, I know you don't want to be doing this. This is not, you're probably struggling. And honestly, so am I. I'm trying to get somewhere and I don't know where to go. I, I don't have much, but I have $100. And I said, here's my $100. And I need some money to get to where I'm going. So if it's okay with you, if I can give you this $100, save you all the trouble, and maybe you can just give me 50 back. I love that you're negotiating. And, and well, and I, I was like, I because mm -hmm. I, I literally didn't have any. And so he looked at me and he goes, and I said, I, I would not, I would not know where to. I, I have literally have, will not get where I want to go, but this will get you where you want to go. And so I remember uh, vividly what he did. He took the hundred. He had a little ratty wallet. He takes it out and he deals me back twenty, twenty, and a five. He gives me forty five dollars back, and he just and he just and he runs away. And literally, that was like my first 24. I found my way back and all of that because I was in the wrong direction. I, I, sat, I got on the wrong bus, clearly. 
But that was like my first 24 hours in the States. And like, you can't even make this stuff up. And, and I've never told my parents a story until recently. And my mom was in utter tears when I told her. She would have been, of course, because I would have wanted to protect you in that situation. So we, I just love that you negotiated with him. I just find that so incredible. Did you realize that you negotiated or was that just like an initial, like a instinct that you did? I, I know you said you had a couple of choices, but where did that idea come from? Because I, I don't know if I would have done that in that situation. I would have just said, just take whatever you want. Well, I, I, there was no, I, I didn't, I mean, there was no strategy there. There was, there was, two, there was two things that needed to get solved, right? And, and the, the one thing, the primary thing was me stay alive and not get hurt. And that means I had to get rid of him in some way. The second thing was, well, okay, if I give him the $100 and he leaves, I'm done. Like I, I literally can't get, I don't know what to do. So two things needed to be solved at that point. One, I needed to get to school and... I needed to get him off my back. So a lot of times when you're in the negotiating world, like we forget that both those objectives needed to be met. Yes, one primary over the other. So worst case scenario, if I had offered him that, he would have said, he would have taken the $100 and said, no way, kid, and run away. And at least I got one out of the two, I stayed alive. But if he got both, I, I win. So it was very, it was a, it was a very instinctual thing. And uh, if you, if you ask me today uh, and repeated that situation, I would have probably just handed him hundred dollars and moved on. Like I literally, I don't know if that would have happened again. And I think it was very instinctual. It was very probably someone, there's probably a blessing somewhere in there that allowed me to do that. But there was no, uh, there was no skill or strategy for that. <laughs> I, I think I got, I, I got lucky. It's a, it's a great story. And, and I know that your parents literally sold everything to get you to the US. And I know that you're very grateful for that. It's something that, you've, that I've seen you say in a lot of interviews, because as you've said many times before, it's not like you literally came to the US with just $10 in your pocket. You had a year's worth of tuition and, uh, and then the $100, which then was diluted down to $50 within the first 24 hours. How much pressure did you put on yourself to make sure that you were going to make this a success? Because uh, your your parents literally sold everything to get you there. Yeah, I I I still think back, and it was it was I didn't see it as pressure at that time. I saw it as an opportunity. I also made a commitment that I was not going back. I, I literally was not going to go back, and it, even if that meant. Me, me, me finding a way to stay illegally. I, I would do what I was not going back. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and so I, uh, but that's interesting when you think about life that way, right? Because when you have no backup plan, then you, I always tell a lot of the CEOs that I mentor is hey, plan B is interesting, but no one changed the world on a plan B. Like nobody, nobody ever changed the world on plan B. And if everyone's like, oh, here's my plan A. And if this doesn't work, I got plan B. And if this doesn't work, I got some contingencies for plan C. And I go, wait a minute. The very reason you're diluting your plan A or your capability around how to achieve plan A is because you have a safety net. If you have no safety net, if you've burned the boats and you have no choice, you're going to find a way to make plan A work because that's what you're truly born to do, meant to do, created to do, committed to doing. So... Yes, you can protect the downside. Yes, you can have a plan B to make yourself feel better. But no, I had no plan B. And, and I, I literally said, I have no plan B. I have to make it work. Whatever it takes to make it work, I make it work. 
And I, I talked to my guidance counselor and I said, what was the, what's the job that I can get for sure right away? And I did a couple other things, but, the, but she said to me, she's like, well, you can get a job just cleaning, custodial, janitorial type work. And I was really embarrassed. I didn't want people to know that I was, had a custodial, janitorial type job. And so I took the midnight to 6 a.m. shift. And so I would go to school all day and then I would pretend like I was a normal kid. And then I would sleep from nine to midnight for a few hours. Then I would go, I would go scrub toilets from midnight to 6 a.m. And then at 6 a.m., I would go sleep for a few more hours for my nine o'clock class. And then it's, that's how it worked. But I don't know if I shared this, I've shared this before, but my, my English wasn't very good. I was trained in written. I could read, but my just nomenclature, I, I, we didn't talk English. They're fluently. Spoken English, yeah. Yeah. And so my, um, my custodial manager who gave me the job, you know, just this, this older gentleman, he said, hey, Sharon, I have this idea. You should go to the library and get one of those language tapes, just like you would learn French or you would learn German or you would learn Farsi or you would learn Lebanese. Just get those, put them on, put them on headphones. And since you're mopping floors for six hours, like just put those on, you'll learn, you'll get better. Well, I go to the library and I ask the librarian and she looks at me, she's like, well, that's weird. And I said, why? She goes, well, we're in the US and no one asks for English tapes. I have French and Spanish and German, but I don't have English language tapes. And I said, well... That's true, actually. I was like, like, you got to give me something. And she's like, well, I got got a book on tape. (laughs) Maybe you'd like some book on tape. I was like, sure. I'll I'll take anything, right? So she gives me a book on tape. And I was like, I got got a year of mopping. Like this, each book is six to eight hours. I'd be done in in a day. Well, my first book, um, my first audio program was Tony Robbins' Personal Power. Oh, wow. You just gave me goosebumps. I love that she gave you that. She had, no, like, she had no idea. And so the funny part is my friends make fun of me when they know the story. They're like, oh, Sharon learned to speak English by yelling like Tony Robbins. <laughs> so, so, I, like, so that's why people are like, why are you yelling? And I go, well, this is all, the only way I know how to speak. All my English was learned by Tony yelling in my ear the entire time. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> and and, and you, you start, that's when you start. That's when I was like, well, what is a state change? I, I had no exposure to growth or, or thinking about affirmations or thinking about like how you think about the, I had zero exposure to all of that. So after the first day of listening to this, I was, I forgot to go change out the tapes. So I listened to the second day. I literally listened to that same, like, you know, like set of cassette tapes for, I don't know, like weeks and to the point where you, you start to say, oh, the quality of your life is going to be based on the quality of the questions you ask. And I'm like, that's a Tony Robbins quote. And he says, hey, you know, the world will give you whatever you ask for. You just have to ask for it intelligently. Like I, I've listened to that same quote so many times. And when someone says you're yelling, I'm like, dude, I'm sorry. Like, this is the, I, I learned to speak English this way. So I'm, I apologize. That's so funny. Uh, you're just passionate about, about the things that you talk about. So <laughs> it's so funny. I love that story. That's incredible. And the fact that, yes, you know, when you were talking about not having a plan B, it's so true. I can't believe I did not realize this until this, until we started, you know, communicating that you really have never had a plan B. You've never given yourself the op- option or opportunity to even consider a plan B. And, uh, and we'll definitely talk about the success that Talos Properties. But one of the plan Bs that you didn't, well, your plan A within the first year of, of university was 
to pay for your second year of university. And I really just would love for you to share this story because when you first um, gave your check to whichever department it was at the uni, they told you it was going to take two weeks for that to clear. And by then you only had about, what, $45 or maybe just under $45. So what happened there? Well, it was, uh, you know, this was day two, right? <laughs> day, <laughs> day two. two. <laughs> day two in the U.S. And seems like yesterday. And so I, show, I, get to, I get to the university. I go to financial services. I hand them. My parents had sold everything that they had and had given me one check for a full year of school. They essentially paid for everything. So I had zero expenses for the first year. They paid for everything. And so I walk in and I hand them my check and it was like an international check. So the lady takes it nice as can be and said, hey, Sharon, welcome. Here are your keys to your dorm room. I'm like, awesome, thank you. What is a dorm room? I had no idea. And then I had like, I have no, I have no, like no blankets, no pillow, I had nothing. And then she said, by the way, since it's an international check, it's all good. It just takes you know, seven to 10 days to clear or whatever long. And I said, she's like, in 10 days, just come back and just check in with me and we'll get you your meal plan cards and access cards and all of that. And I said, okay, cool, awesome. So yeah, I, after negotiating the $45 with the, with the mugger, I, I, had, I got back to school. So I had like $20, $30. I can't remember exactly how much I had, but I had enough for a couple of days worth of food. So I went and bought some peanut butter and all that. I, I bought some food, but then I realized across campus at that time, they were having, all these students were coming back. So they had evening parties and pizza parties and all of that. So I would go to every party possible so I can get food. But after a while, these parties died out. And sometimes they go to the same party two times and they'd be like, hey, bro, you can't come to this party again. Like, that's not cool. And so once I, when I got kicked out of a party, I just went, I was like, okay, this is they caught me. So I'm just going to walk out. So I sat, I was just walking and I saw a big dumpster and I just sat by the dumpster. Well, I was sitting on a park bench, again, a park bench, but I saw a couple of people that had this, that this party toss a couple of boxes of, you know, pizza from the party into this dumpster. And I had not eaten for like a couple day and a half, something like that. I was hungry. And I was like, okay, should I really, I was thinking, should I really jump on that dumpster and get a slice of pizza? And that's not when I was in India, we were kind of middle class and we I never had to fight for food. My uh, food always showed up. I didn't know any different. And I never thought that would be my life. And then I realized that my parents had literally sold everything that they had. And the last thing I could do was not tell them I don't have money for food. Like that would not be okay. So I waited till it was much darker and no one was around and uh, put my hoodie on, jump on the dumpster, grab a you know, open this pizza box. It was just an eight by eight, really. I mean, it's terrible. I hope no one ever has to dive in a dumpster in their lives. It's not, it's not a conducive experience. It's not, it's not a happy place, right? So I grab this, I grab a couple slices of pizza. I, I grab the box and then I just run. I just run to my dorm room. And it was, you know, two and a half slices of pizza, whatever. It lasted me a day and a half. And I was super grateful for it. And I was like, wow, I can't believe that that, that happened. And then Lo and behold, I found myself watching that dumpster. Maybe there was more goodies that got dropped in there. So I saw, I saw another group of people drop these big bags of, in the U.S., they call them Subway sandwiches, so big long sub sandwiches inside this dumpster. And I waited till the end of the day and I kind of mustered some courage and jumped and grabbed, grabbed these Subway sandwiches. And we had these, these, I saw this box of toaster pastries. I don't know what they call them in Australia, but there's just little Pop-Tarts or toaster pastries. And, and I grabbed him and right then something smacked me on my cheek 
And I, I felt something. I was like, what smacked me on an eight by eight dumpster? And I, I was bleeding. And I look and I see these two beady eyes in the dumpster. And there was a raccoon that just whacked me. And, I, and it's literally at that point in time, this is like, this is not even a story. Like, this is insane that <laughs> stuff like this happens. And I'm bleeding. This is all within your first week of the US. Yeah, my, yeah. I'm, I'm bleeding and I can, I can smell my blood. It's just nasty. And I, didn't, and I didn't know what to do. So like at that point, I, I have no memory of what was going on in my head at that time. But fight or flight kicks in, right? And so, so I was like, I, I, I need to protect myself. So I grab this box of Pop-Tarts. I grab my Subway sandwiches. I kick this raccoon. I don't know what else to do. And I just jump out of the dumps and I run. I just don't even look. I just run. And I run as fast as I can. And finally, I, I sit down on the, I sit down and I, I, I look at myself. Like, I, I don't even have a mirror or anything. I'm looking at myself. I'm like, what is this? And then I'm thinking, well, should I eat first? Or should I get a tetanus shot first? Like, what should I do? So I eat first. And then I go, <laughs> I went and get a tetanus shot. And then I was thinking, well, if this was the low point, and life's testing me. I'm grateful for it. I, I made it. I, I can survive this. And sometimes I think that we never ask ourselves the question, what's the worst thing that can happen? Like we never ask ourselves that question, what the wor- what's the worst thing that can happen? And I think that's super important because our capacity for pain is, or our capacity for risk is dramatically heightened when you know that you can say, you know what, I'll be okay. Like I'll be okay if that's if that was as low as life could get. I'll, I'll and I'm and I'm okay. I'm alive. I, I ma- kind of made it. I, I'll be okay. And a lot of times, I don't think people know how much pain they can take because we've never been tested to take that pain. I've never been tested until that day. I, I was I lived a pretty you know comfortable life, and I think that when you get tested, it allows you to one, know that you can take on more risk, but also it allows you to have a lot more gratitude for what you have, generally speaking, as well. So the days that I got food, I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. People are complaining about the mac and cheese. I'm totally glad yeah. I got this. <laughs> I'll I, have that, I, thanks. Oh, yeah. This is totally <laughs> fine. For, for those that are listening, I, I always, you know, when I talk to the CEOs that I mentor, oh, often they, they'll, they will feel stuck. And I try to pull out stuck Get them on getting them unstuck is a really powerful thing for a for a coach or a mentor to do, right? And I always say, hey, so explain your stress, and they'll say, well, I'm really stressed. I'll give you a real story. I'll, my one of my one of my clients said, I'm really stressed that I lent my my one of my best friends fifteen thousand dollars, and he's not paid me back, and now he thinks now he's avoiding me, and it's really sad that I've lost my best friend and I've lost fifteen thousand dollars, which makes which makes sense. He's stressed out. And I said, well, okay, so this is where now when people are in the state, they don't know what to do next, right? And so, so I said, well, let's talk through it. it takes, it's a very simple framework. What is the worst thing that can happen? Let's, let's go to that. He's like, well, the worst thing that can happen is I'll lose my friendship and I lose $15,000. I was like, well, are you sure? He's like, well, I'm not going to lose my friendship because the worst thing that can happen is I'm going to lose $15,000 because I'm going to forgive him and I'm, we're going to move on. I said, okay. So the worst thing that can happen is you're going to lose $15,000. And instantly you see them feel better, right? And I said, okay. In an ideal situation, ideally, what would you like? Just ideally, what would you like to have happen now that you know all of this has happened? And he says, well, I don't know. And I go, well, no, you know, let's talk through it, right? Because people are just they struggle to talk through their ideal situation because culture has not 
given us the permission to state ideally what we want at all times. And I think it's sometimes we just need the permission to do it. I'm like, hey, I give you full permission to tell me in an ideal world, what would you like to see happen right now? He's like, well, in an ideal world, I'd like my friendship back and I'd like a very simple payment plan because that'll make it easy on him and also give me confidence that I got my money back. I go, okay, if that's ideally what can happen that you want, what is the first thing you can do towards that goal? And you know, instantly what they'll say again is, well, I don't know. I'm like, <laughs> no, you run a $100 million company. Like, you know, like, what is, like, think about it for a second. And he's like, well, I need to talk to him. I'm like, are you sure? Because what are you going to say? Now it brings it to life, right? It's like, well, whatever you, you're telling me that he's avoiding you, what are you going to say? It's really hard. Like, can you, are you going to actually tell him that? He goes, no, I don't want to talk to him. I said, okay. But you have to communicate. Are you going to send him an email? He's like, well, that's too cold. I said, okay. So we came up with this plan where I said, okay, why don't you send him a, leave him a voicemail or send him a voice memo on your iPhone saying, hey, Jimmy, it's been, you know, you're one of my best friends. I don't want this to come between us. I know there's this overhang of money. You're probably thinking about it. I'm probably thinking about it too. I just want to make sure that that does not come between our friendship. But I know in the right world, you want to get it back to me and, and I like it back as well. So if it's okay with you, here's what I'm going to do. Most importantly, our friendship is the most important thing. I want you to know that. That's why I'm sending you this message. But just for the future, just to kind of us be good with each other on the money side, I'm going to write you an email and uh, maybe lay out some ideas that, so that it can work for both of us. And if that's cool, just let me know with a quick message if that's cool. Right? So you send the voice messages and then Jimmy instantly responds, hey man, thanks so much. That's cool. So now, my, so now my, my client writes the email and says, hey, I know you're going through some tough times. I really appreciate it. Your friendship is more important than anything else, but I just want this, I don't want the money to come between us. Can we make it easy where over the next three years, you pay me $500 a month? And then we just call it quits and it makes it really easy. That way, it won't make it hard for us. Now, you've taken a stress. You figured out the worst, the worst kind of like, the wor- what's the worst thing that can happen? You figured out the ideal situation and you figured out the next step. So anytime someone's stressed, if they can go with that framework, it's very easy to get yourself out of that. And, and most of the time, it is our job to get people unstuck. And when you can get them unstuck, powerful things start to happen. But it's very hard. That's why you know, people need someone like you who can help them through their inner voice, right? Like I need, I I talk to my coach, I need her because uh, transformations don't happen in isolation, right? Like you can't, I can't solve this problem on my own. And I talked to somebody today and he said, your your mind is is like a bad neighborhood. Uh, Don't go in there alone. And I thought that was was super interesting. Yeah, Yeah, super interesting, interesting, right? Yeah. And so, so sometimes we just need a thinking tool, but, but the way we, having somebody on your side, having someone in your corner is really powerful. And when people poo-poo coaches and mentors, I'm like, you're totally wrong. I invest, it, it's seven figures, right? Over, over a few years on this stuff, because that is the fastest way to upping your performance because someone else is in your corner. And that gets very exciting. Yeah, no, definitely. And uh, I, I'd love to touch on the, the, mentor and the, and the coach that you hired uh, when you were at Tellers Properties. Before we get to that point, there's a couple of points that I'd love to touch on. So within your first year, you were thinking, okay, I need to now raise some money to continue to pay for my tuition. This is just such an incredible story. You came up with this concept of selling cables. Can you touch on that? And you made 57000 in three weeks. And we're talking 57000 
however many years ago, which was a lot of money. It is a lot of money now, but it would have been the buying power would have been a lot more even back then. So 57,000 in three weeks. Can you go through that story? Well, it's, it's, it's amazing because, um, so when I, this was the early days of the internet and there was no Wi-Fi or anything like that. They'd just come out with internet. We're and, from the same generation, Sharad. So yeah. I do remember those times very clearly. <laughs> totally, right? And then, but I enter my dorm room and this is how the dorm room is structured. You looking, you, you enter the dorm room and instantly on the left and the right are, is a bed. And right next to the bed is a closet. And right after the closet is a desk. So it's kind of like stacked in, in, in order. And then there's a window. So it's a two-person room, sometimes a three-person room. But when, as soon as you enter, which was my room, I'd gotten there early, there was this gray box on the door, on the, on the wall. And I said, okay, cool, internet box. But then my desk, we had no laptop or anything. So I had a com- the school-given computer. So I was like, how do I connect this gray box to this computer? Like, I don't know how to do that. And then I try to measure it. I, I try to measure with a rope because I didn't have a measure. I don't, I don't know how to measure it. And I measured my, my thing at that point was it took roughly without it kind of like being on the, sur- like being in the middle of the room, it was roughly 18 feet, 18 feet from the box all the way kind of to the computer. So I was like, okay, cool. I need to go get ethernet, internet cable for this, this for my room. So I went out. And I, uh, my roommate was there, so I went out and I bought some internet cable. And I had no idea how much it cost. I bought it and it was cool. I plugged it in. And then I, we saw my next door neighbor roommate came and they're like, oh my gosh, who designed this room? Like there's 18 feet. And I said, wow, this is kind of an opportunity. Why wouldn't, and, and nobody wants to go do this. What if we just did that? So I talked to my roommate and I said, hey, do you have any money? Because we could do something here. And he's like, I don't have any money, but I have my parents' credit card. And I was like, well, what is that? Like, how does that work? He's like, well, I can put my a thing on it. I just let them know. And then as long as I promise to pay them back before 30 days, we should be good. I said, okay. I said, here's my idea. Let's make one trip to see if this works. Let's go to somewhere wholesale where they sell Ethernet and cable. And uh, we can sell it at a premium as long as we can do this right. So we first bought a little bit to see if the concept would work. We sold cable at $3 a foot. They were close to... I don't know, 4,000 dorm rooms. And so we only sold uh, $3 a foot. We sold, which is amazing. And it went fast. And so I said to him, I was like, listen, and we got paid in cash. So I was like, well, listen, man, tell your parents that, you know, you're going to have to drive home with cash to pay them. But like, this is an opportunity. So he's like, let's do it. I didn't even have clothes. So we went and bought more cable. We put all my cable in my closet. And then we sold cable for $3 a foot. 18 feet per room, right? And so, and then we sold close to a thousand rooms and, you know, which is, which is insane. <laughs> that is. <laughs> and then if you like, and, and the math kind of adds up where you did discounts yeah. and all of that. And, and it's, uh, it's pretty like for, for like a close to three month period, I took, I took kind of 500 to a thousand dollars in cash to the bank at, a, at every week to deposit it. Cause I didn't know that you can't show up with a bunch of fives and tens and say, here's money. Yeah. Like, so, yes. <laughs> and that paid for that paid for the second year of school. Then I got, you know, then I did the custodial janitorial job. But after that, I realized that money was just a vehicle. I can find a way to make it. And that, that broke like a little cool money mental barrier for me. Since then, money has not been a, a pain point. Uh, not, that, not, that, not that I have gobs of it, but it's just that it, I, I'm, comf- I'm comfortable enough knowing that, hey, if I need to make X, I can create that tomorrow. And that's a, that's a, that's a really empowering feeling. 
That that really is because I can tell you personally, you know, that that money mindset, I have struggled with that. I, I really do. Even even till now, not that I don't think things are possible is is that that self-doubt creeps in and then you can really not only just talk yourself out of it, but really question yourself and say, okay, sometimes it does feel like it's only possible for other people. And I know that I'm not the only one that feels that way. There are a lot of people that do. And I don't ever talk about this on a podcast ever. This is the first time I've really touched on this, Sharon. But, you know, for someone like you that has has really understood that money can be created, it's just a vehicle, it's a tool, how can somebody apply that mindset? Like what do they need to do? Obviously you have had that evidence that's proven to you that you can do that. Is that part of the process? Yeah, totally. So uh, let's let's actually, this is my my favorite stuff to talk about, right? So there's a concept, I don't know what it's called, but I kind of made it up, right? And, and it's called minimum standards. It's, I love calling it minimum standards. And the minimum standards are these. So let's say, and everyone in some way has has had this impact their lives. So let's say, we'll take somebody graduating from uni right now. You graduate from uni and you're like, you know what? I have some uni debt. I need to live in Sydney, Australia. I need to make some money. I need to at least make $50,000 a year. Again, I'm making stuff up. I need to at least make $50,000 a year. And that will kind of, I need to at least do that coming out of, out of uni. Well, that person has set themselves a minimum standard of at least making $50,000 a year. So what happens is all their thoughts, all their initiatives, all their feelings, all their opportunities reorganize around making sure that Sharon coming out of uni needs to make $50,000 a year. So all these, so they start to say, hey, here are the jobs that give me $50,000. Here's what I can do. Or if I can't get a full-time job, I need a part-time job. They figure out how to make $50,000 a year. But that's an insane problem because now when they do that, nobody, after that point, what happens is they only think incrementally. They're like, well, I made $50,000 last year. I should make $60,000 this year. Let me see if I can get a $60,000 career or maybe I'll get a side hustle. And Literally, they will make that happen because now they've softly raised their minimum standard to sixty thousand. Well, think about this for a second. Let's say I'm at sixty thousand dollars right now, and let's say my sister is sick and she needs thirty thousand dollars a year in care, and that just happened. Right, I'm making stuff up now. I need to make ninety thousand dollars a year. I don't have a choice. And suddenly, my sixty becomes ninety. Suddenly, and so what do I say? I'm like, okay, I- I'm responsible to make ninety. And so my minimum standard went from 60 to 90. So I instantly recreated my life. I'm like, okay, I, 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 yes, I'm, I need to figure out how to make 90. And so your world reorganizes around making 90. So you, you will figure it out. Like I'm guaranteed from 60 to, to figure out how to make 90. I'm guaranteed to do that. But if that, had, if that requirement was not pushed on me, I would, be, I would just stay at 60, which is super interesting, by the way, because now, now, now that... There was a reason to make 90, so I made 90. Otherwise, I was comfortable at 60. Well, that's weird. Why couldn't you have made 90? Which is super fascinating, right? So we are so drowned in our... like we. It's all based on our minimum standards. So the one thing I always uh, tell the CEOs that I mentor is, I, I try to break the pattern of incremental and talk about the pattern of replacement. Hey, let's replace your 50 with 150, right? And that, that starts to change. Then they, they go through a little shock which is good. The shock is good because now it helps you reorganize your thought process. And now they, now they don't think, oh, can I go from 50 to 150? Now they're like, how can I go from 50 to 150, right? And because suddenly it's not about going from 50 to 70 because they think they have this base. When you replace, you completely replace how that works. And 
it's kind of hard to do on your own because it's easy to default back to your old minimum standard. It's a lot easier to do it with a coach or a mentor. And that's why I can say, hey, I can, I can get people from, from making 500 grand to a million almost overnight in their head. And then everything is mechanics after. And I also can tell them, I'm like, I know the fear that you're going through. Let me talk you out of it, right? And the minimum standard, and the two things are always, can I lift up my minimum standard? And the second is, don't think about incremental, think about replacement. And there's a way to wire that. Like you can actually wire that because you're wiring a new belief system. And my coach will always say this, you should, you know, you wake up and say, hey, I make $150,000 a year. And with that 150, I, I live this life and create this impact. Hey, I make $150,000 a year with that 150. Now you're rewiring your identity, which is your new minimum standards to be that way. Because literally, if you believe that your minimum standards are the engine, then you will reorganize life to get to those. I mean, think about this for a second, right? A lot of people will say, well, I don't swear or curse in public. Well, why? Because it's your minimum standard. That's all it is. It's just an identity. That's That's all it is. But once you give yourself permission to do that, now you do it because now you switched your identity. And people will say, well, I'm a technophobe. Like, I'm not very good with technology. That's really bad negative language, right? Because now you can say, well, I am good with it. Okay, awesome. Now your brain says, well, hey, if it's an identity problem. Hey, I am, if I'm good with this, I have to do this, right? The easiest way for people to get healthy and, and, and work out is not, saying, not, is not saying, oh, I'm going to work out tomorrow. It's saying, oh, I'm an athlete. Well, does an, does an, does an athlete eat that? No. So now, now it becomes an identity minimum standard thing. And so when you can rewire it into your identity, then you're able to like really snap out of it and you can replace yeah. stuff. No, I love that because um, you would know this, you know, identity drives behavior. And like you were saying, so when, once you know what that identity is and what you, what you want that identity to be for yourself, then you do ask yourself those questions. You know, does an athlete do this? Or what does an athlete do to get to this point? And then you have to apply those behaviors to build that identity within yourself and construct that part. So I've never really looked at it that way. I love that you've shared that. So thank you so much. I mean, I would love to talk more about it. Okay, so you, you basically then finished university and then what happened from there? So what, what, where did you go from finishing and graduating? So you did computer and, is that right, computer science? Is that correct? Yeah, yeah I did computer science and then I was, um, I presented, I, I was actually presenting an idea that I'd worked on at university to, in, a, in a contest, in a, in a programming contest. And then one of the judges of the contest actually said to me, hey, you didn't win. <laughs> You're not going to win today, but I like your idea. I just invested in a company that could maybe utilize the idea that you have. I don't know if it can. Let me introduce you to these guys. So they introduced me and turns out it was a good match for my idea and what they were already working on. So I joined them and then we got a chance to build a company. And then this was during kind of the the boom. So the technology boom. So we were able to build a company during that time and have a, you know, have it, have it be acquired. So that was uh, all very lucky and fortune, you know, it was fortune favors us at that time. So we, that's, that's what happened right after that. And then one of the things I'd love to touch on there, because I know that the company did quite well, and then it was acquired after was about two or three years. Is that correct? So one of your biggest, I guess, one of your biggest lessons there was the contracts that were created and the numbers are just astronomical. I mean, I know that you did make some money, but you were saying that the company was sold for, what was it, $550 million at the time. 
but you lost out in terms of how much you could have potentially walked away with because of the structure of the contract and the dilution of the shares and the value of the shares. So how would you have done that differently? I know you were very young, you know, 21. So how would you have done that differently? I mean, do you, do you ever think about that? Thinking my family could never, everyone could have just lived on this money for yeah, <laughs> generations for generations. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I, I think about it, but I, you know, I, I also never personally believed that I deserved that much. And that was kind of a personal belief thing. I got what I got and that itself was significantly more than I ever dreamed of. But there was a clause in the contract that is called a ratchet and essentially says, hey, if this event is triggered, then this formula applies. That's all that means. And and that formula applies. It, It applies negatively to the dilution of one party and that way the positively to the non-dilution of the other party. I had no idea what that meant. I had never even done that math or anything like that. But I little did I know that, you know, the day of it happening, I had no idea that that clause would get triggered. And now I know. <laughs> now I now know. You know. And, and, <laughs> and and I don't I don't put that into like in, in the companies that we invest in, I don't do that anymore. I don't I don't put that clause. And even though it's the right thing to do for an investor to protect investor rights. I don't do that because I don't think most founders know how to do that. And um, I try to keep it pretty transparent because it, it kind of affected me a lot. But overall though, I've talked to, I've had a lot of coaching around this, but I, I don't believe that I was not in a, in a state of belief where I deserved all that. I was super glad to get what I got. I was super grateful for that experience. I, I, don't, I can't even believe I got what I got, which is, which is awesome. And so that was my taste at it. And I was like, okay, well, I can go do more. I, I'm young. And I was 21, 22. I was like, I, I got my whole life ahead of me. I can do more now. But I think it was a, my first learning in, hey, I'm totally good. Like I'm, I, got, I got more than I ever thought. Like I'm not going to be greedy. So it was a good lesson in me understanding a, a little bit more about myself, which was I'm not the, I'm not the like I want, I want a boatload of cash kind of guy. Like I'm not wired that way. I'm wired for safety and security, you know, because I didn't have that growing up. Well, I had that growing up, but I didn't have that in the early years of me being in the US. So as long as there is a baseline of safety and security from a money perspective for my family, I'm good. I'm totally good because now that allows me to do my work and put my good into the world. But if that is ever jeopardized, that 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 kind of crushes me. So um, as long as I'm... My baseline is from a money perspective is like my minimum standard, if you will, right? Is to take care of my family and have them be safe and secure and, and so that I can continue to serve. And so learning is that one, I learned, I learned more about myself at that time than the contract. That was really good for me from a learning perspective. And, and no one could dangle the character of, carrot of, hey, Sean, you'll make a lot more money if you do this. Like, that's not me. I'm not, I'm not wired that way. But I also learned that being really uh, fact uh, fluent in in things was important, and so I uh, I'm, I'm a lot more of a ninja when it comes to like making sure I understand what I'm signing these days. Well, yeah, that definitely happened for you, didn't it? It's a, it's a great lesson. So, did you call your parents and share the news uh, in terms of how much money you had acquired and and you know the success that you had created for yourself? Because surely that would have been part of some kind of conversation. I would have been so happy for you. Yeah, kind of, but like we never. Like my parents and I have, have never talked about money ever, and I would wager that my parents have zero idea, uh, you know, the magnitude of anything or everything that's happened economically in our lives. They, you know, I think they, I think their gift was, hey, we did our part, and we hope that he's good, 
And, um, and, but now like I still have, you know, my parents now will say things like, Hey, do you need anything? Can we wire you some cash? And I'm like, no, dad, I'm okay. You know, it's great. Yeah. It's awesome. Right. It's awesome. And my dad will say, he'll say, Hey, I don't know. I don't have much, but you can have whatever I have. And I'm like, dad, I'm good. You know, you're, you're, I'm totally good. And they want their children to like, I would do it for my kids, just like you would do it for yours. Right. But I think they know now that we're okay. And I, I'm responsible. I'm a responsible adult and I'll take care of my family. But we never, you know, it's one of those things that we never talked personal finances at all. As long as my parents said, Hey, are you guys okay? And I'm like, yeah, we're good. And so, you know, if, uh, I hope I never have to ask them for anything, but no. I'm sure if I, if I ever do, you know, they'll, they'll, love they'll that do it all still- over again. I love that your dad says, hey, do you want some money? I love that. It's just, it just shows how generous your, your parents are. So, so you, sold, you, you sold your business and then you had some time off and you were teaching tennis in, over the next five years of your life. And you took some time off to really just, I guess, really figure out what you want to do. And then you ended up applying for a job at Goldman Sachs and you had 39 separate interviews, which is incredible. That's just such a crazy number. And you said there were individual interviews too. So it's not like you were being reassessed by the same people. You literally had to be accepted by all 39 people to get this job. And I love that you're wearing your headset because I know the story behind this headset. So (laughs) that you're wearing right now, um, in terms of your mindset with, with work. So did you think that it was going to be such a crazy long process to work for Goldman Sachs? And was that a really good decision for you to work for such a company? You know, I don't, I don't know. But looking back, I, um, from the mentors that I had, they said, hey, if you want to learn, if you want to learn merchant banking, investment banking, if you want to be on Wall Street, this is, you have to be what they called, you have to be in one, one of the bulge bracket banks, and which means one of the big five at that time. And so I said, okay, well, let me go look at the big five. And I interviewed the big five. And I was like, well, whoever is, if you made it at Goldman, like it is the gold standard for someone graduating from the MBA program. And I said, well, what does that take? And so I literally, in my first year team of business school, I literally gave up on on school. And I spent all my time because I think what a lot of people do is they're like, oh, I want to go to school and try to get a job at the same time. I basically said, hey, I'm a focus kind of guy. I don't care about school. I'll study my second year if I can get my job my first year. But if I don't get my job my first year, my second year is toast anyway. So I'm very simple that way. So I'd spend all my first year just trying to like network and, and get a role. And so I, I did. And, but, it, but I had no idea how long this process would be. So I, yeah, it was, it was 39 individual scheduled one-on-one interviews. That was not including phone calls. That was not including dinners and breakfast. That was not including informational stuff. So I probably, I don't know, it was probably like over 50 kind of touch points with that with the company. And I actually think that that was important for someone like me because when I did start and work full time, I had an insane support system because you had 39 people who voted for you to be there. So they almost felt like it was their responsibility to make me successful. And over even what now, time frame were those 39 interviews? Uh probably probably two, three months, two months. So two, three months. So um it was basically, hey, we need you in New York tomorrow. We need you in San Francisco in three days. So it was almost like on their schedule. And so it was, it was all in a pretty tight period. And I learned, I learned a lot in that process, but there, there is what it taught me. After you go through like, say, 15 or 20, you're like, well, I'm in. I'm here this far. Like, how, how much harder can this be? And my wife laughed at me. She goes, how many more interviews do you have to go through this 
And I said, well, I'm, I'm, there can't be that many more. And he just keeps going. And, but I, I learned a lot in the process. And it also teaches you some resiliency, right? You're like, okay. You start to, I wouldn't say they got easier, but you started to get in the head of the people. You're like, I know why I'm here. And I would tell people towards the end, hey, just so you know, I'm on interview 37 and I totally appreciate you having me back. And they'd be like, 37? Good. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so it was, it, was, it was fascinating. And and then the opportunity came up for you to invest in Telus Properties. And I'd love for you just to go through that story there and 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 how you took over the company and and then obviously how you created this incredible success within the five years. So your your business partner at the time approached you and he said, look, I know someone that's got this property company. We should really look at investing in this. And uh, and then the rest was history. So what were you, what was your thinking in terms of, because there are a lot of people out there, especially right now with everything that's happening in the world with the coronavirus, there are a lot of opportunities for companies to be purchased and acquired. So what were the things that you were thinking in your mind that, yes, this is a good opportunity to invest in this company and what were the touch points there? Yeah. And so I, I would, I would be um, lying if I told you that I had like this amazing strategy, but you know, I didn't. Uh, it was more <laughs> a, it, like I had no idea. It was, it was more uh, my client at Goldman Sachs was, uh, who had been my first investor, a partner for many years. He had, you know, he was approached to be an investor in, in TELUS at that time. And he had a good friend who was the founder. And that's how that was his connection. So he said, Hey, Sharon, uh, these guys are growing. You're an investment banker. Can you just come and hang out with them and maybe give them some ideas? And I said, Sure, of course, I'll do it for you. So I did it for them. And then I realized that at that time, the CEO and their partners were growing this business, but they weren't getting along. And it just, they just had the, the three partners just were thinking about the world completely differently. And so it was affecting their growth. So I told my business partner, I was like, hey, I think there's an awesome opportunity here. Like, you should buy this company and you should run it, not, not me. And he said to me, he's like, hey, but if you do it, I'll do it. I'm like, well, what do you mean? I'm not leaving. I'm finally like sinking my teeth into, into Wall Street. I'm not leaving now. And he's like, no, this could be a great opportunity for you. And so, and we were just having our first, my wife was pregnant with our first child at that time. And my wife said, hey, this is interesting. This is a startup. We're going to have to write a big check to get in to get control of this company, build this business. She goes, I don't know if this is even going to work, but I'm not moving on a hunch. So I said, okay. So what does that mean? She says, well, prove to me and prove to our family that this is going to work and then we'll move. And I didn't know how long that would take. And our son was just going to be born then. So I, for close to 18 to 20 months, um, maybe a little longer, we... I commuted every single week. I flew from the East Coast to the West Coast of the United States and worked. And, and that was tiring. And you do that and you're, you're essentially trying to build a business and while you're trying to prove it. And we just realized... I, I, I mean, my partner is really smart and he's, he's older than I am. So he, I was the operator and the growth engine of the business. And he was kind of the serve in the chairman role and kind of help guide decision-making because that, was a, that was, a, it was a really big business. And the two of us, it was, it was great. And we were able to... We were able to work hard and, and put a lot... It's, it was funny. You just, uh, you, I knew nothing about the real estate business. I learned it all on the job. And it's one of those where you put in the hours to learn it and then you just finally get... like you almost hit the 10,000 hour rule and you're like, wow, I, suddenly you wake up one morning and you're like, I, I, I understand everything. This is amazing. But it, it, it is like a four-year overnight success where you're like, no, I understand everything. This is amazing. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, but the thing is you did, you did still achieve so much within the five years and going back to what you were originally saying, where you didn't give yourself a plan B for it to be worthwhile for you. And, and also I think one of the things you've said in the past is for it to be exciting is to have this crazy goal of 10 Xing the business. I mean, the business was doing quite well in terms of from an outsider's point of view, 300 million a year is, is, you know, a lot of money. I guess maybe in proportion to property, maybe not so much in terms of transactions, but 300 million, when you walked in and you said, okay, we're going to get this done in five years. At any point, did you think that this is probably not going to work or what was going on in your mind? Uh, so, uh, the, the, so I'll, I'll give I'll give you a sense of the math, right? So it was not again. It was one of those where, in retrospect, it was a really good strategy. But I, during that time, I literally had no idea what I was doing. So, how that all happened was, generally, I said, okay, we are. If we took it from where we are now to the number we want to hit, what everybody benefits, that's the three point four billion dollar number. To get to that number, I. I don't know how long it will take, but given economic cycles, we generally, economy works in seven-year cycles, generally speaking, because we had just come from a 2001 to a 2008. That was a seven-year cycle. I said, okay. So if it takes seven-year cycles, we probably need a couple of years to actually figure out an exit strategy. So I don't know how that would work. So take the seven and subtract two. So you have five. So I said, we have to hit this goal in five years. Like that was literally the math, right? And, and, so, and so I said, okay, so we have to do this, we have to do a 10X in five years. And if we did that, it give, gives us a lot of options. And that was the big goal. And so I said, well, if that's the case, let's look forward five years and let's say we've achieved this goal. What does our company look like then? How, what works? What, what, uh, what do we have in place to have the success? Okay, we have a really good recruitment engine. Great, awesome. We have a really good sales engine. Awesome. We have a really good operations engine. Awesome. So you figure out the, the way to... People overthink the stuff. The, I always try to lean forward and I say, hey, let me lean into the future. And I ask the question, hey, it's five years from now. We already are making this money. We've already achieved all the success. What is true? What is true in our lives? What's true in our business? So look, if you close your eyes and look around, you say, hey, we have a really great blank process. We have a really great blank process. We have a really good... So you know everything that's true. And then you say, okay, looks like these seven blank processes are what we have. And that's how our business is getting here. Great. That means that I have to, have, I have to work on delivering those over the next five years. And that those become the goals. They, those become the pillars. And then you just execute on those. And so since we have a chance to lean forward and taste that in our mind's eye a little bit it focuses us a little bit more to say, okay, I know why I'm working on this because I've kind of seen it in my mind's eye that I've seen the success come to life. And that's super important because a lot of times people will just say, well, I have a plan. I'm going to execute on this plan. That's not enough because it's very hard to have that much belief in a plan that you put together. But what is more powerful is closing in your mind's eye, leaning forward and having this vivid vision and looking at it, looking around and then saying, I have achieved everything that I've wanted to. What is true right now? What is true in my life? And then that, those are the reasons why you've achieved it. And now backtrack and build those because then you know that if not anything else, at least you've seen that success. So it's, a, it's kind of a mind hack in a way, but it gives you some perspective into the future on what you should build today. Otherwise, you just get very distracted on what the next priority should be. So within the first, um, I think it was 12 to 18 months, it took you a while to figure out what the actual plan is, the business plan to actually create the, the 10x result. 
there are so many companies out there that want to, you know, really just elevate their business and really scale their business. So what three things can you share that people need to apply in their business to be able to scale? Because you were saying early on that you could practically get someone to change their mindset from generating 500,000 to a million overnight. So what are those three things that a company or business owners can do to lift their business up to the next level? Yeah, totally. And so uh, my, the, the, I'd say there's, let's say, talk about the first one. I, and I think there needs to be a lot of discipline around this, which is, I try to call it, it's not my wording, but it's the thing, you need some form of singularity of focus. And again, that's the, hey, my goal is to do 10x in five years because of all these good things. If you don't have that, then you wake up every morning and you don't have a filter for making decisions. Because if you wake up in the morning and you have a new idea, you have a new blog post, you have a new video, and you go down a rabbit hole, now you're not working on that singularity of focus. A lot of times for us, it's saying, here's my singularity of focus. This is what I'm working on. And I, I shout this out from the top of the mountain because now people know that this is my singularity of focus and I got to stay true to that. I love anyone that can say, hey, my goal, my goal is in five years, I want to do this. My goal is I want to create this. I love those people because they have so much singularity of focus that you want nothing more than to help them, right? That's very cool. The second thing is, I think everybody needs what I like to call a cadence of accountability. You need somebody kind of keeping you on track. And if you don't, if you or I don't shout out our big goal, then how can anybody kind of keep us on track? And I'll give you a very simple thing that we did for accountability. I, um, one of the big things for us was to recruit a massive sales force. The bigger the sales force we had, the more sales we did. And, but recruiting the right people and the recruitment of the right people is the, one of the hardest things in our business. And so we had a bunch of sales managers, et cetera, to try and recruit people. And I said, well, if recruitment is the most important thing in our business, why don't we have insane accountability around recruitment? And so we, we did this call. So every single day, we would do a call. And the call was for all the sales managers. It was 7 to 12 people based on the time. And it was from 9.45 to 10 a.m. every single morning. And literally, we would talk about one thing. And the one thing was, every single person would get to announce two numbers. How many appointments did I have yesterday? How many appointments am I committed to having today? Because if we know that no appointments means no people, very simple, like they're not joining us out of the thin air, you have to actually meet with them. And everything was based around getting appointments. And so people would say one, zero, which means I had one yesterday and zero today, or four, one, four yesterday, one today. But very rarely would you hear zero, zero. Because when you start hearing zero, zero, and everybody else on the call says three, two, five, seven, zero, you know, zero, six, it puts this accountability pressure on you to perform. And that alone, just that alone changed our culture because now every single day, everyone was focused on the simple same thing. And there was a lot of accountability around generating appointments because very simple, I call it appointments before agreements, right? In our world, the more appointments we generated, the more agreements we signed. And that made, that made a lot of progress for us. And that, that accountability, I would actually tell you that our growth essentially went kind of amazing from the time we started that to when we didn't have that. And we were doing that once a week, but we saw no progress at all. Well, once you have it every single day, it got very exciting. So that was number two, cadence of accountability. The third is when you want to build something magical, when you want to build something big, when you want to build something impactful, I like the saying, I say good process drives good results because we can hack things together. We can put kind of things to work. We can do a patchwork of stuff, but for something to really function on its own, you need to have good process around it. And, and I'm not a big fan of the 
the hustle and grind movement. And and I don't I, I like work ethic and working hard, but the hustle and grind leaves everybody tired and resentful. I really, really believe that because the more you hustle, the more you think that something is not working, and the more you grind, you're like, oh, it's a badge of honor. But you're showing up as somebody that's not you. You're showing up because you feel like you deserve something because you worked hard. Like that's not the answer. So good process is super important because if I'm spending my time building a new onboarding process, once it's built, I, I need to be able to hand it over to somebody that is way more qualified to do that so that I can go build something else. And the big part of growth comes from a well-oiled machine. And, and the more processes we can have in our lives that dial in what we do from a systems perspective, the more comfort we have that we can actually scale. Otherwise, we're doing the same things over and over and it like, drives us insane. That's true. And, and you touched on the hustle uh, because there's so much of that happening right now in terms of just showing up on social media in that way. Did your health decline at any stage when you were really just, I can only imagine you had your, you know, your, your son at the time, newborn, quite young. You were in this process of getting this business up and running. You were flying back and forth from home to the new destination to, I guess, prove to your wife that this is going to work. Surely that would have taken a toll on your health. What was that like? I was terrible. (laughs) You know, there's this thing where um, I learned afterwards that you can't just 10x one part of your life. And I didn't really know what that meant. And I just thought that, hey, we're going to 10x our business because we set this goal and everything else in my life can be just fine. Like it can be the same. But what you don't realize is if when you when you need a transformational shift, yeah, incrementally something can happen. Like, yes, I can, you know, I, I can have an incrementally better whatever haircut, but like that doesn't mean everything else in my life needs to get better. But when you have, when you're going to incrementally, you know, grow your life, other areas of your life need to level up as well. And I had, I literally had no idea about that. And I learned that the hard way. And the first thing that broke was my health. My health was the first thing that broke. And I don't know whether it was the stress. I don't know whether it was whatever it was. Like I struggled a lot. I was not sleeping well. I had a lot of autoimmune issues to the point where it, it was, it was ext- extremely sad where I couldn't, I couldn't really deliver on a lot of things because my health had just degraded so much that I had to like back off. And I was in the hustle mindset. I was like, well, I, if I just work, it's just a five-year thing and everything else will just will be okay. I, I'll, I'll catch up on my sleep later. I'll catch up on my food later. I'll catch up on everything else later. And you also realize that you put a, you drive a wedge into your family and your relationships. You're not around. You're, you know, my, my wife would, my will say, hey, you're, you may be around physically, you're not here mentally. And like, that's really, was really hard on me. And I'm, I'm still like that sometimes, but I'm, I'm getting better. And it's a total work in progress. And I also think now that the more you're around, hopefully you'll be around more mentally as well. And so I always tell people, hey, you can't just 10X one part of your life. Even if people are saying, you know, they want to go on this 10X uh, uh, health goal. Like suddenly, hey, I want to lose, you know, I have, I have a lot of friends that say, hey, I want to lose 50 pounds. Like that's a big goal. But when they do that, it can't happen in isolation. Like other things need to change along with that. If you think that you can just lose a bunch of weight and you don't think that it's, you're going to be a better person, a better father, a better mom, a better, you know, a better entrepreneur, you're crazy. Like everything lifts when you try to do something transformational. So the insight though I have is, I think that you can, you can lift your life by just 10xing any part of it. And it doesn't need to be work. Like your life will automatically level up as long as you 
transform any single part of it. But if we don't even, so you, so if we are feeling like we're in a funk, we just transform one part of it. If, if we just suddenly, can you imagine suddenly if my relationships with my family just became amazing, everything else would become amazing because of the joy that I have with them. Everything else would, everything else levels up. And so that the insight is you don't have to find the hardest thing to 10X, if you will, just find the easiest thing to 10X and everything else will level up with it. And it kind of goes back to systems. And once you figure out what those systems are, then you can apply it into other areas in your life as well. Because I know you're very big on systems. So, so you went from then toward the end of the five-year period, you ended up selling Telus properties for $3.4 billion, which is incredible. And you achieved everything you had set out to achieve. And now you run Kingston Lane. So can you tell us more about Kingston Lane and and what, what you do and, and where you're at right now, especially with the coronavirus, if that's even impacted your business? Yeah, the, uh, so, so um, coronavirus has impacted our business dramatically. It affected it a lot. So less about Kingston Lane and more about the process. I, I'll tell you that one of the things that I saw, we had a chance to invest in a lot of businesses through my fund. And one of the businesses that I really loved was what... Uh, Kings Lane was already doing. So this was already existed. And uh, we had invested in this business and uh, they were doing a good job. And I was like, hey, this is something that I'd really like to spend time in. So I kind of uh, took a, you know, decided that I would, I would spend my time there, took the leadership role and I've been driving that. But the goal has been to build a kind of a set of software systems for the real estate business. And that's, we've had that kind of grow across the world uh, in the UK, Australia, New Zealand as well. But from a coronavirus perspective, just uh, people, people, as soon as a consumer is affected, because we are, we are connected to the consumer. So as soon as a consumer is affected, values are affected. If values are affected, sales are affected, sales are affected, what they spend on it. And so we're down the chain. So we're definitely affected by the business, by the, by the economy. But the one thing I will share is if anyone is listening to this either now or post coronavirus, just think about this. Everybody's been affected everybody's been affected right now. And the only way you're not affected is if you are in a, even the healthcare business have been affected. Everyone's been affected. So we have to, I'm spending a lot of my time right now thinking about, okay, well, what is the new world going to look like? Like, and I don't know the new ideas. Like, I don't know what, what happens next in, in mine or any other new businesses or anything. But what I, what I am trying to figure out is what does the new world look like? Because if you don't, if, if we can't kind of paint a picture of, hey, here's what the new world's going to be, then you don't know how to take advantage of the opportunities in the new world. And I think that's the hardest part. The hardest part's saying, I believe the new world's going to have X. I believe the new world's going to have Y. I believe the new world's not going to have what we had before in whatever, airplanes or whatever it may be. And I think that's super interesting because and I think that's the hard part. That's a challenge for me right now. I'm spending a lot of time just thinking about what does the new world look like? My entire focus right now is like, what does the new world look like? And until I can draw and paint a picture of what this new world looks like, I don't know how to add value in it. And that's really bothering me right now. Yeah, that, that, that is a tough process, isn't it? Because I mean, even the new, new world or the new norm, all these terms that are being thrown at us right now, really, if anything, uh, no one really knows what's going to happen. We really just don't. And all we can do is just try different things and just see what works. And it's just, I feel that's just has to be part of the process. Otherwise you just get so overwhelmed that you'd be so scared to try anything because no one really knows what is going to happen. This is something that we we talked a little bit about hardship. We're all experiencing some kind of hardship because really we've, we've all had it pretty well. Like we've had a really, really great 10 years and 
And I know for myself, I've never really experienced massive hardship. I've, I've lived a pretty good life from, you know, when, when I was a child, but this is a different situation. And I think it is a bit of a blessing. It forces us to be creative. It forces us to break free from our everyday thinking and say, okay, let's look at the world in a different way and let's look at and see how we can create something from this space. So it'll be really interesting to see where you take it from there. I know we've gone over time and I'm so grateful for your time. Honestly, I think I could speak to you for hours. There are so many areas that I'd love to touch on. I'd love for you to come back on at some stage because even just the mindset aspects, I feel that a lot of people would really want that from you. Can you just share a little bit about just some of the learnings that you want to make sure your kids take from you? So what are the things that you're trying to teach your kids when it comes to not even just money or the business world, but just some real life lessons that they can carry with them for the rest of their life? Yeah. And I'll just say there's there's probably uh, three big things. The first one is you know, my wife has this on a sign. I think I shared this. Is, you know, kind people are my kind of people, right? I actually believe that people always say nice guys finish last, nice gals finish last and all of that. And I, 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 I've, all, I've tried in a lot of ways to be who I'm not. And I've realized that I love just being around a lot of kind people. And I've shed a lot of people from my inner circle that are just not kind enough. And so even if my, regardless of what happened with my children, I, I keep saying, hey, like, be kind. Kindness is kindness drives everything, and it's also important that we learn through that, right? So I'm I'm learning as I tell them I have to be that role model. So I'm getting better at that as well because uh, that's that one thing. If I, if they can take nothing else away and that's all they took and that was the only gift I could give them, I I I would actually be okay with that. The second thing is. Just to, just to have them learn to believe in a, in a bigger and better future. I think that was a great gift that my dad gave me. And just know that, hey, listen, if the future is bigger than our past, we always have something to aspire to. And I, the easiest way to do that is to always let them wish and dream and hope for whatever they want. A lot of times people say, ah, you can't have that. I'm like, yes, you can. You can have whatever you want. You just have to ask for it intelligently. So believe in a bigger and better future. And the third is to really kind of know that cadence drives a lot of success. And so we are what we do repeatedly. And if we can choose what we do, it, it's super helpful. So even the small things of doing the, um, doing the affirmations every single day, it's, it's the things that we do every single day are super important. So if we can influence what they do every single day, then we've installed certain kind of you know, unbelievable habits early on. And hopefully that will give them good results because just because they don't have a choice right now because we're, we're kind of forcing success, right? With those things. So it almost makes my, my wife and my job a little bit more interesting where we can say, hey, what kind of habits can we install right now and force that kind of success? Because they may just stick with it for the rest of their lives. So those no, are the three absolutely. things I think about a lot. Thank you so much. And and for those that are listening, you have to subscribe to Sharon's email. I have to say, Sharon, you really share so much. Like you're just incredibly generous. I honestly feel as though when I get your emails, I feel like you're writing them just specifically to me, that it's got that real personal touch and you really share so much wisdom. It feels like just a complete conversation and there's so many learnings from there as well. So thank you for being so generous with that. And for those that haven't subscribed, you have to subscribe to Sharon's email. And if they want to connect with you, is Instagram the best place and your website? Yeah, Instagram's the best place. So just uh, find me on Instagram, shoot me a direct message and say, hey, I just listened to your podcast on on uh, on Tima's show, and this is great. And to just give me that way, I know where you heard it, and I can I can kind of share anything that I have. So just shoot me a direct message saying you heard this 
on the show. And uh, that'll be a tribute to us being on together. And and Sharan is as kind as what you hear him over this interview. He's just this incredible, humble person. This is just how he is. It's just really beautiful. So thank you for showing up this way in the world. And um, my final question, my mission for this podcast is for people to believe that their potential is limitless because I, as we touched early on about identity driving behavior, I really believe that we can construct to be whoever we want to be. So I'd love to know what your definition is of limitless potential. I'm still going to go back to uh, that which my dad said on the park bench, right? And I think, you know, if we can install that, we we get to do some amazing things. We just have to believe in a bigger and better future. The more we can believe in a bigger and better future, it opens up all kinds of possibilities for us. And it's never it's never one thing. It's never a destination. It's just like, hey, as I am today, I believe something bigger and better is coming. And that allows me to aspire to something bigger and better. So uh, if there's anything you can take away, just I'd say, hey, always believe in a bigger and better future. Thank you so much, Sharan. I'm really, really grateful for your time today. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to today's conversation. At Deconstructing Success, we have so many more incredible conversations for you to download, listen to, and share. Check out the links in the podcast description so that you can continue to learn, apply, and evolve. We would love for you to support the show. And you can do this by leaving a review on Apple Podcast or leaving a comment on your favorite platform. You can also share this episode with someone that you know who can benefit from listening to today's show. If you wish to connect with me personally, you can find me on LinkedIn, Instagram, and YouTube. Just type in Tima Alhaj, send me a direct message, and let me know which episode you listen to. All of the links are in the podcast description. Your future success is waiting for you. Until next time, this is Tima. Tima.